Greetings in the precious name of Jesus. It's been a blessing to have been here. The, the energetic song leading, I appreciate. And a challenge in the opening and uh, children's lesson and the open sharing. Thank you. But most of all, thankful to the Lord. He's the reason we're here. He rose from the dead, and he is the one that we think of Adam and Eve, and those in Eve's head, those characters were slain. What a metaphor. That there is a resurrection possible through the Lord Jesus. So, I woke up a little bit with a cold this morning, but I think I'll be okay. But you can turn to First Peter again. Peter was being a shepherd. When he wrote this, he was an older person. He was an elder, he calls himself, in chapter 5. And he tells the elders to feed the sheep. And that's what he was doing, and it's my goal as he was feeding his sheep, that we would extract that, what he did in his day, understand what he meant, and then made applications for today. That's my goal. And we are at verse 13 this morning, where we'll begin, verse 13 of chapter 1. And we will go only to verse 16. The title is Like Father, Like Son. <laughs> you could say like father, like child. You could say that because we are very two genders here. But uh, it sounds better like father, like son because that's often how it goes. Like mother, like daughter. And that's the goal this morning. And uh, verse 13, we'll read that one now. I'm hoping my voice keeps going till the end here. <laughs> verse 13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that it to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking, of course, when you see that welfare... <laughs> Wherefore, there, you wonder what's come before. And so the prior 12 verses are the wherefore. How can I summarize those 12 verses, which be my goal? And um, I just have a few statements to summarize the first 12 verses. Wherefore, because of all that happened. Um, Peter seemed to be enamored with the Lord Jesus Christ. And with the gospel talking about the first 12 verses. He talked about a living hope that is caused because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He talks about an inheritance that all of the believers are going to get in heaven, that inheritance, which is not going to fade away. It's, it's going to be, it's sure. 
He talked about rejoicing even when we're in the middle of trials. He talked about loving him whom we have not seen and loving him to the point where we have joy unspeakable and full of glory. He writes about the interest that the Old Testament prophets had in this gospel that they predicted and didn't understand and even the angels had an interest in it. <coughs> and is all that is before this wherefore. And I thought of this. I thought of Peter. Peter was a little Jewish boy. He grew up probably around Galilee. That's where he was where, where Jesus found him at the Sea of Galilee fishing. So he probably grew up as a little Jewish boy around the Sea of Galilee, going to the synagogue with his parents, with that culture. And as a boy, there was no preaching about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was no church to go to. There were no Gentile people coming to the Lord. There was no Holy Spirit that was shed abroad in people's hearts. There was no new covenant or new testament. All those things had happened in the last 30 years. That things which the prophets had spoken about had happened in Peter's lifetime. These were great things. These were new things. These were astounding things. You think about it. Of thousands of years. And all those prophecies and all those types and shadows. And Peter is here and he is realizing this happened not only in my lifetime, it happened to me, and it happened here. And and I think that's why he those first twelve verses. You look at that is just he just splashes the glory of this thing all over. Uh, it's amazing. His world, as when he was a little boy to where he was now as an older person, is completely different. It is not the same, and it's never going to be the same again. It's better. The long-awaited Messiah had come. Peter was never going to be the same, and neither will the world ever be the same. And so then we come to verse 13. Halfway through the first chapter, we come to the first commandment or the first directive or the first do this in verse 13 is the first of that in this chapter Um, all the glory verses are past now and now we're giving something to do and Peter actually does what a good leader does he splashes the glory of Christ out first before he gives them uh, some things to do or some issues they have. He, he, Paul does that too, and it's most notably in First Corinthians. You just went through First Corinthians. Uh, the first thing that Paul does in that letter, where he 
uh, is really going to run them through the mill is he he gives them praise and he gives them acceptance. That's the first thing he does. And uh, that's what Peter's doing here. Peter wants to encourage his people, his sheep in their walk. But he also wants to give them direction. And verse 13 is that transitional verse. Wherefore, because of all the preceding, all that has happened, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in this, there is three things in this one verse that we are to do. <laughs> gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. And now, if I tell you, okay, now you go do that. Do that today. <laughs> Do it tomorrow. Do it this week. Do it to the end. <clears throat> well, how do you do this? Uh, none of these things are something, all the, all the commandments, all the directives he gives here, it's nothing you can put your finger on it. It's not a physical thing. You can see the results of it, but you can't see the source of it. Because all of these directives are inward dispositions of your heart, of the heart. Girding up the loins of your mind. <laughs> it means in another translation, prepare your minds for action. That's the first directive. Get your mind ready for action. Get ready to do something. In the vernacular, you could say, roll up your sleeves and put your mind in gear. It's now time to go ahead and do something. But it's to have, not just to get your mind in gear, it's to have a particular kind of mind. Not just any mind, not just getting your mind ready for action, but you're supposed to have a particular mind ready for action. And that is Sober-minded. <clears throat> Be sober. We heard a little bit about that this morning. Serious and self-controlled. Don't ever let your hair down, metaphorically so to speak. Don't ever let your hair down in your mind. Don't ever just release and relax and let Go. Have the mind that I imagining that the Ukrainians have right now. <laughs> now, it doesn't matter here in Ukraine, and if you are a Ukrainian and you are fighting or you are hiding, and you're in a war zone, whether you are fighting or whether you are hiding, you have a sober mind. <laughs> Your mind is active and alert and focused. So as you think, okay, how do I gird up the loins of my mind and be sober? Think of being in a war zone. And there are enemies around. And whether you are fighting the enemies or you're hiding them, you are alert. 
In fact, that is exactly, exactly what Peter's saying. If we would go, and you can turn, if you want to, a few verse, a few pages back to 1 Peter 5, verse 8. We have the same word, be sober. Talking about Ukraine, talk about enemy. So in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, there's the word, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may, he may devour. Resist steadfast in the faith. So the context is actually uh, war, or actually enemy territory. Because we are in enemy territory, it's not territory he owns. We heard about it in children's lesson. He he took it. But it's the territory that he exerts an enormous amount of influence right now. The enemy, the devil does. He is going to be chased out. The end is is certain, but it's not yet. And so, we are to be sober. So, the number one directive from Peter, prepare your mind for action, be alert and serious, and then, and hope to the end. Now, I think most of us are enough of scholars, Bible scholars, to know that hope does not mean, I hope so. That's not what the Bible, I don't know if it ever means that in the scripture. Hope in the scripture is the idea of expectation or confidence or trust. Always. I think so. You can correct me if I'm wrong. When we're talking about earlier about a lively hope, that means an expectation is that it's alive and it's well. So hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it helps if we have our minds ready for action, and if we are sober and alert. No, sorry, I'm saying that differently here. We are called to continue to hope, (laughs) but it's much easier to continue to hope if our minds are inactive and are serious. See, when Jesus is revealed, this is what the context is, it's going to be glory. Victory is coming. And and talking about wartime again, in the middle, and I'm talking about us, in the middle of this destruction and this devastation that we find around us and even encroaching in us, in the middle of that devastation, wartime, we must continue to look forward to that confident victory that we're going to have. (laughs) We need to continue to have that expectation and never doubt that it is coming. Victory is coming. This is a, there is a grace that is going to be coming. So you have those three things in one verse. The first thing Peter finally tells us to do is gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. Then verse 14 to 16, which is the main part of the message then, 
As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which is called, which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. As obedient children, if you are a parent, you know you like obedient children. I think even if you are a sibling, you like obedient children. We like him. We like obedient children. Well, Peter likes obedient children. And I think God likes obedient children too. Our Father, our God, our Father is pleased when we, his children, are obedient to him. Now, that has a whole bunch of things in it and to, for, for, uh, for you to be pleased or not pleased in obedience or the fact that you can have obedience means that God has expectations. And it means we can either follow his expectations or we can not follow them. We don't tell our children, don't touch the sun because they can't. That's not something I've ever told my children, don't touch the sun. Now, we have told them, don't eat the cookies. Or, we have told them, keep your room clean. If they are obedient to our expressed desire, if they are obedient children... they will comply. And if they're not obedient children, they will not comply. So Peter does not say, do not fashion yourselves. He doesn't say that, do not fashion yourselves. He says, do not fashion yourselves according to your former lust. According to your old pattern in your ignorance. Uh, there is only one other place where this Greek word, fashion yourselves, is found in the scripture. It is Greek word. I'm sure there's other variations of it. And you are familiar with it. It's in Romans 12, 2. And there it says, and be not conformed. <laughs> be not conformed to the world. Again, it's a negative. Be not fashioned, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What Peter is saying here, don't conform yourself to your former life before you were a Christian or before you were born again. <clears throat> the world that you used to be a part of. As the song goes, years I spend in vanity and pride. <laughs> that was my past life. That varies, and we'll talk a little bit more. That varies in different people, how long that was. But God doesn't want me to live like that anymore. God doesn't want me to eat those cookies that I used to eat. 
there's a denial going on here. I actually have to say no to something that on uh, something that I two things, something that I could do and something that I would actually like to do on one level. I need to say no to something. But I deny it. I say no to that because he has said no and I am his child and I want to be obedient to God. And so there's a denial going on. There's a no going on. And it's an active choice that we make. Those former lusts, we all had them. Some of our lusts overlap and some of ours are more unique to ourselves. A lust, a lust is a desire. And this is right out of Strong's, especially for something forbidden. Now, a lust is, the Bible, when it talks about lust, it's, the Greek word exactly means desire, and it can be for something good. But generally, it is used as something bad, something forbidden. Peter is assuming Christians will have desire for the things they used to do in their past. Things that they stopped doing and repented of, things that they have put under the blood of Jesus, things that are forgiven in their life, things that are forgiven, they're under the blood, they are no longer, uh, they're no longer guilty about them. But they are still have the ability to do it and they're still a pull to do it. So someone might say, oh, I am so in love with God. I am so filled with the Holy Spirit that those things that are in my past are gone forever. And I'm done with it and I have no issues with it anymore. Peter would not recognize you if that's you. Because the assumption here is that actually there's a choice. Now I know the power of God and there are some things and there are some times where God actually does that. But that is not a guarantee, neither is it normal for it to be across the board. There are some things that people have been delivered from and it was part of their past. But don't operate on the presumption that there's not going to be a choice or a temptation. <clears throat> Peter is operating on the assumption that there is a present possibility. So, you did repent of your cookie capers of your past. But the cookies are still there. And there still remains a heart, a part a desire in your heart, called a lust, there still remains a desire in your heart for cookies. But as an obedient child, because mother does not want you to eat those cookies now, you don't go near them and you stay away from them. I used to do things for show, so people would think good of me, and praise me. 
I don't do that anymore, although that would feel good. But I am okay with taking the low and hidden road. I'm giving examples now. <clears throat> I used to get angry and get even with people, either physically or verbally. Though I still have those urges, I have prepared my mind for action. I'm sober-minded, and I don't. I used to indulge into my moral lust, but I repented of them and denied myself of illicit pleasure, even though I still have those urges. I used to be independent and do my own thing, but now I consider others, my brothers and my sisters' input and their thoughts. But I'm tempted to revert back to my old ways. I used to disobey my parents, but now I honor them and obey them and seek to please them. All of us have a former life in our ignorance. All of us used to do things. As I was preparing this message, I read an article about a man who was born again back in 2008 out of a pretty raunchy background. Well, here's his own testimony. And I, I, I'm going to go somewhere with this testimony. Just follow me through here. Talk about our past life. He said, on August 28, 2008, the Lord put to death a man who was atheistic, a drug dealer, a womanizer, a drunkard, a liar, a thief, a idolater, and suffice it to say, the fool of fools, the laziest of all sluggards, the chief of sinners. That's his testimony, what the Lord did on that day. Say, God plucked a rebellious atheist out of the depths of a life of wanton rebellion. God saved a man given to extremes of foolishness in nearly every way. And amazingly enough, God implanted a new heart with new desires and new affections. That's salvation. What was once a heart enslaved to sin became a heart enslaved to God. What was once a heart, a life devoted to delighting in evil became a life seeking to be devoted to glorifying God and delighting in him forever. And as he was writing this article, he was at the verge of actually starting a, a church plant. He was going to be the pastor. Fourteen years ago, almost, he was an atheist. But the article he wrote was addressing a problem that he encountered. And this is the problem I want to address this morning. He said, I came from a very terrible background. I have a testimony, a glamorous testimony. And he said, in the circles that I, well, it, it doesn't... <clears throat> Yeah, here's, here's the way he said it. The fact that I have a rather sordid past tends to be a strange form of currency within many in the church, as if it gives me more credibility 
or perhaps means I love Christ more than one who has never shared my experiences. He found that people were enamored by his testimony, and because he had this testimony, they put him on a higher pedestal. And he said, that's a problem. What would he see rather than this glamorizing of his testimony and his person? He would rather people look at the power of the gospel to change lives. Even someone who's had a, what he called a ordinary moral pagan. (laughs) That's what our children are. They're ordinary moral pagans. And the gospel needs to save everybody's life. And if the foot is level, if the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and he saves an atheistic person, and he saves a moral child, the power of the gospel is the same. <clears throat> at the la- end of the long article, he says, he says this, I find the boring conversion story all the more attractive, for it is a testimony of familial or family faithfulness and intergenerational faithfulness on the part of God himself. Then he said, it required an exciting testimony at one point. But once you have a fam- an exciting testimony, you have gotten the heart of a maybe a father. And then he raises his children. He says, you should have Well, I'll read it here. It it required God to step in and change the trajectory of a family who knew nothing of God, as he then made them a people of his own possession, and that we ought to rejoice. But he said that exciting conversion story ought to produce little boring conversion stories (laughs) that will continue to progenate and produce more and more boring conversion stories through the faithful generations of Christian families. And what I mean by boring, I mean because they were not in a life of sin. They did not, they weren't atheists and they weren't womanizers and all those things. They're just simply recognize their own sinful heart and their need for a savior and have a changed life. And he says here, you should hope and pray that your children have a boring testimony and that your grandchildren do too. Amen. It is God and the gospel that saves, not our exciting testimony. Well, while I was going there, I just wanted to bring that in, but we're, we're, whether exciting or boring, our past, we were all cookie, cookie capers in our past. And God says, keep that in your past. That's the message this morning. <clears throat> As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Now, we all know what a pattern is. 
<clears throat> the old saying, practice makes perfect, is not actually quite accurate. <laughs> because it's only perfect practice that makes perfect. In other words, you can have, uh, you can practice wrongly and you're not, well, you're going to get perfect in the wrong way. But, <clears throat> simply to state, bad habits do not form good habits. So, we are not to fashion ourselves in our former ignorance. Rather, we are to f- pattern or conform or fashion ourselves after God. As it is written, be ye holy, for he is holy. Human nature is not fixed. Human nature is fluid. We are not victims of our past. I mean, they have an impact but we're not victims of our past. We're not victims of our passions or our positions. Our our nature is not fixed. It is malleable. It's like clay. The potter molds it until he has it in the shape that he wants it. Then he either lets it dry or he fires it. He puts it in a furnace. And when it's done, it's hard, and it's no longer moldable. The only way to change that pottery now is to break it, but it will never be moldable. But before it gets dried or fired, it's moldable. And that is us today. Today, we are, you are moldable. You're not fixed. Human nature is not fixed. In fact, you are changing this morning. You're constantly changing. We will change for our entire life. Now, it might slow down after 30 and a little more after 50. But we are always being molded. Always. You won't leave this morning the same way you came. You have gotten molded this morning. In fact, that is a major reason we gather together for church, is to mold ourselves. We are being fashioned. And Peter says, don't fashion yourselves after the old pattern, but fashion yourselves after a new pattern. That is what he is saying in these verses. And then the question came, well, does God change us or do we? (laughs) And there's no illustration that's perfect. But one way to describe change is, is a suntan. When you go out in the sun, you actually get changed. (laughs) But do you do the changing? No, the sun changes you. You get a suntan. Or a burn. But what do you do? Oh, you expose yourself to the sun. That's what you do. God does the changing, but there are a responsibility we have. And that's not exactly, but that, that, that gives a little bit of an idea what we're talking about. We are changed, 
by the influences that are around us. And that's actually where we're going to go next. If you don't want to be changed by the sun, you either stay out of the sun or you keep your sleeves rolled down and put a straw hat on. Um, Talking about our past again, I'll just read a few verses in Ephesians chapter 2, very familiar verses. Wherefore in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now that's Paul speaking, and it seems like him and Peter are saying the same thing. There was a past, and in the past you did this. And we were exposed to those powers, and those powers fashioned us. We walked in them, it says. We had a spirit, and that spirit moved us. Until we come to verse 4, and that verse 4 is, but God. And that is where we all need to come to, those precious words, but God. So we had those powers and those influences, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. The grace there is the idea of that sun, that sun shining. It's grace that saves us and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that's us now. Um, Paul and Peter, they're writing to people who are in this blessed state. And Peter commands his people to be holy. And he quotes Leviticus. Uh, there's two places in Leviticus, 11.44 and 19.2. And 19.2 says this, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, talk about Moses, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. <clears throat> so we are to fashion ourselves. We are to be holy. What does that mean to be Holy. When God told Israel to be holy in Leviticus, he was instructing them to be distinct from other nations. And he did that by giving them specific regulations to govern their lives. Israel is God's chosen nation. And God set them apart from all other nations. They were holy. They were set apart. They are his special people, and as a, as a consequently, they were given standards that God wanted them to live by, and one reason was so that the world would know that they belonged to him. 
So when Peter repeats the Lord's words, he is talking to believers. As believers, we need to be set apart from the world unto the Lord. We need to be living by God's standards, not the world's standards. God isn't calling us to be perfect, but he is calling us to be distinct from the world. First Peter, in chapter 2, the, the believers are actually described as a holy nation. We are actually be separated from the world, and we need to live out that reality of separation in our day-to-day lives. <clears throat> a little bit of theology here. <laughs> Personally, we are holy as Christians because of Christ's sacrifice. Because, because we have believed in Christ, we have been raised together in Him in heavenly places, and so we are holy. Positionally, we are holy. We're never going to be holy by trying to become holy. We are holy because of the sacrifice of Christ. But what is in view here is our position and our condition are to match. (laughs) That's what's in view here this morning. We are absolutely to be a separate people, separated from the world's goals and pursuits and connected to God and his will. A.W. Tozer had a number of points as he talked about being fashioned or shaped. And I'd like to uh, bring a number of his points out because I don't think I could improve on that. I mean, I, I modified and made it applicable to our situation here, but the, the points generally come from him. We often think of God being the potter and we being the clay. And there are, as a metaphor, there's an element of truth in that. <laughs> but not here. Here you are the molder. You are to fashion yourselves not this way, but you are to fashion yourself this way. So in this metaphor, you are responsible for how you are molded. And we did not read in verse 17 of 1 Peter 1. I'm going to read it now because the end product of our molding of how we are molded is actually going to be judged by God after we die. In verse 17, and we might get that the next message. If you call on the Father, that's our such children, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, past the time of your sojourning here in fear. There's actually going to be a judgment on how we allow ourselves to be molded. Very clearly, God is not a respecter of person. It doesn't matter if you are a Christian and doesn't matter what kind of Christian he is, not a respecter of persons. He is He's an impartial judge, yeah. 
So we ought to pass our pilgrimage here in fear and soberness. A.W. Tozer says, some of the things that will shape us, and these are things that will shape you. Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you choose it or not, these things are going to shape you. Number one, this is his point. The literature you read will fashion you. Now, in his day, there was nothing digital. So we need to expand that a little bit. <clears throat> the media you consume will fashion you. It will condition your mind little by little. In an essence, you will begin to emphasize what is emphasized, what you consume. You're going to dislike what they dislike. Your values will be shaped and molded by the literature or the media that you regularly consume. To be holy, your media, your input needs to be holy. Number two. The songs you sing and the music you enjoy. The music you enjoy will determine what you are like inside. Music has a spirit, and spirit moves and molds and shapes us. Spirit permeates us, and it, it changes us. It, it, it comes in, and whatever that spirit is, it has its effect on us. It shapes our emotions. As you think of a potter making this vessel, the, uh, the, the emotions are like the different designs that you put on the vessel. It might not be the superstructure, but it's the designs. I remember as a youth, the first time, I remember, yeah, I don't remember the exact time, but I remember as a youth hearing a recording where they had, in between the stanzas, you heard their breath. <gasps> and then they sing the next verse. And, then, <gasps> and it was strange to me to hear that. The first time I heard it, I said, that's strange. That, that seemed like an, uh, a distraction, a little bit like a baby crying while the recording is going on, you know. And I didn't realize it at the time. Back then it was probably pretty new, but at the time I didn't realize it. That is actually how musicians make it intimate and emotional. It's a manipulation. They get into your intimate zone. They get close to you. The technique is actually essential, inappropriate. Um, just this week, I uh, went to listen to an album, uh, an hour of hymns with vocals. Oh, that sounds good, right? Hymns with vocals. And it was that breathy voice to the extreme. It's like she was singing right in my ear. <clears throat> I didn't listen to it. Music is awesome. It's beautiful. It's God-ordained. <laughs> Sing. 
and listen to holy music. But there are many, many ungodly and unholy music, and they shape us. Either music will shape us either in a holy or an unholy direction. I can't stop you from getting you, I can't stop you from listening what you are listening to, but I can warn you, you are being shaped, whether you like it or not. Number three, the pleasures we indulge in whatever kind they may be. In this area is where we often hear the question. Actually, it's not a question. It's actually a challenge in the context of a question. What I'm going to say next is a challenge given in question form. Do you think you might know what it is when it comes to um, activities or pleasures? Anybody have any idea what I'm going to... It's a question in a challenge form. I'll talk about it a little bit. (laughs) That's it. What's wrong with that? (laughs) That's not a question. (laughs) It it can be. It can be an honest question. It's not always a question, though. (laughs) The answer is, whatever it is, is going to shape you. And when you have an older person saying no, you might want to consider that. You see, we have five senses. And of course, we have emotion. We have touch, taste, smell, sight, and hearing. Some of us more than others. And it's not just for survival. They are not just avenues of pain. They are gateways for enjoyment. Those senses are for pleasure and for joy. So, pleasures are not automatically wrong. In fact, they are a blessing. But here is one way, and John, John Wesley's mother wrote to John this following advice. And I think we do well to listen to it. When would you, <clears throat> would you judge the lawfulness or unlawfulness of pleasure? Take this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away the relish of spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that is sin. Is it sin or not? Well, in this context, it will shape you in the wrong way. Whatever that is will shape you the wrong way. So pleasures we indulge in. What's wrong with that? Number four is the ambitions that we entertain. Nowadays, we have people, young men, living in their parents' basements until they are in their 20s and 30s, and they don't seem to have much ambition, but ambition is the 
It's necessary for life. You you got to have ambition. You got to have drive and purpose. But what for drive and purpose do you entertain? Is the question. <clears throat> what would you like to be? What do you dream about? What for fantasies do you have? If you would be actualized, or what? Who are your heroes? That's another way to uh, to. Uh, Determine the ambitions we attain. Your ambitions that you have are shaping you. And they need to be holy ambitions. Rick Hess used to say his ambition was to be a millionaire by the time he was, what, 21? Something like that. That was not a holy ambition. (laughs) And... And he never did attain it, praise the Lord. But um, what are your ambitions? They will shape you towards holiness or away from it. Number five, the places we go to. On our way to heaven, we need to be careful what places we visit along the road. The environments that we subject ourselves to. So you go, and I, I'm just going to pick out a few examples, which is you can go a hundred different directions with this. So you go to the indoor skating rink with hundreds of others and listen to that music or to that rodeo, and then you come home. Just remember, you didn't come home the same way you went. As our guidelines state in ours, as far as recreation, the main premise is our leisure and recreational activities should be consistent with kingdom Christian values of humility, sacrifice, and modesty. And then it makes the statement, this, the world's entertainment diminishes a hunger and thirst for righteousness. So the world's entertainment will shape us. It shapes you. It will, the places we go and the environments we subject ourselves are going to shape us. Whether you want it or not, it will. The places we go. Number six, the words you say, the language you use, and the friends you choose. <laughs> Friendships are just, well, we are social creatures. We need friends. And close, faithful, trustworthy friends are worth a lot. (laughs) But friendships mold you and shape you. And if you have a friendship with someone who does not mold you or shape you in a right direction, I, you, you need to consider if you have friends, and I'm not talking about outreach, I'm not talking about maybe, you know, you, you what Paul said, if you don't associate with adulterers, you, you, if you don't associate with them at all, you have to get out of the world. You have to associate with people. We're talking about friendship. We're talking about connections. The friendships you have shape you, and you need to be aware of that. 
when look at all your friends and 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 be aware that well let's say it this way lot was surrounded by many friends it almost destroyed him and it did destroy his family <clears throat> Sometimes we need to take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus and say no to certain friendships. <clears throat> Number one, uh, remember Psalms 1. Blessed is the man that standeth not in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, nor walketh in the way, yeah, yeah standeth and walketh and sitteth. So that's at the idea of influence and being with people. And finally, the thoughts that we brew over, and I mean brew over, the thoughts that we regularly think. We need discipline in our thought life. To think things that like Ephesians, Philippians 4, think those things that are worthy and a good report and are pure and, and godly and so on. Because our thoughts, uh, like, like the ambitions that we entertain, which is mostly thoughts and drive, but our thoughts shape us. If you think negative thoughts or you think evil thoughts about somebody or you think sensual thoughts in this area or you can go anywhere with your thoughts, your thoughts are shaping you. They are influencing you for good or for bad. <clears throat> we are being fashioned. Many Christians have made their society the standard. And when they see a Christian living a holy life for God... They often say that person is too strict. He's going too far when he is actually just being holy. But being holy in pretty well any culture, but being holy in this culture will make you countercultural. You're not going to fit in. So some Christians, and they think of the world at their standard and just follow the world so many decades behind it, maybe. Other believers are not our standard either. They're a help, but they're not our standard. Neither are godly leaders our standard. You can follow, as Paul did, you can follow me as I follow Christ, but Christ is always the standard. Do not follow the world, the culture, other believers, or even godly leaders. Follow God. <clears throat> so we are clay. God gives the potter the clay, and now he says, shape it. He gives the builder the materials and say, now build it into a worthy temple. And someday the Lord will ask us, how did you shape it? With the materials that I gave you, 
I gave you the materials, and I gave you the tools, and I gave you the hammers, and the saws, and the levels, and the plumb lines. How have you done? Someday, God is actually going to, in verse 17, there's where we're not going to talk about. Someday, God is actually going to ask us that, this very question. Someday, we will be rid of our flesh and our evil influence entirely. But until then, we are called or commanded not to fashion ourselves to our prior lust, but to fashion ourselves after God. So we have, we will look at the judgment of believers probably sometime in the future. But for this morning, as a as a um, little bit of a conclusion here, I'm going to go over. What we are to do, what we learned this morning, gird up the loins of your mind, prepare for action, remain sober and self-controlled, continue to anticipate the glory and the war that, uh, the reward that is coming when this war is over. And we will welcome the victor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't give up that expectation. While you're having your, and do that with a sober mind. And then, reject your sinful past with its habits and its activities. Rather, separate yourself from the masses and follow after God. And follow his visions and his standards. Christianity is a obedient, faith, love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can, and we can kneel for prayer. Lord Jesus, again, we come before you. We thank you what you have done for us. Lord, you have provided such a great salvation. When we were in the midst of this world and under its influence, we have those words but God. And Lord, it's that grace. We All we have done, Lord, is exposed and come and exposed ourselves to your grace. And in fact, Lord, your grace has come to us. And Lord, we are the recipients. And Lord, now as obedient children, we do want to be obedient children and not disappoint you for all that you have done for us. Lord, there's a world that needs to see it. There's a reality in our own homes. There's a reality in our own churches that we need to experience. And Lord, I pray you would be with each one of us as we consider the truth of your word and apply them to our hearts today and this week. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.